Well, good morning, gentlemen. <clears throat> so glad that you're here today. I'm so glad to be with you. It's always an honor uh, to join with you as brothers as we study God's Word, His spoken Word, and His authority uh, together. Um, this past couple of weeks, you know, the pastors and the officers, you know, we've been celebrating Sandy a good bit. We've been having lots of goodbye parties for him. And it's been a lot of fun. But as you know, Sandy hates all things emotional and all the mushy stuff, right? So in our love, we, we spared him from that. And we really have just been roasting him for like the past two weeks or so. And, and it's been a lot of fun to roast your boss, I'll tell you. And uh, <laughs> um, we, we spent a lot of time really on his famous three-point, 13-point sermons that he's known for. But we had a good time with him. And we had lots of fun, but there's this one thing that he said in a moment that we did have a serious time together uh, recently that I want to share with you because, because it applies to all of us and it applies to our text today. Uh, not too long ago, we had a fake session meeting and we invited him. He thought it was a session meeting. And all of the pastors and all of the officers and all of our wives were there to celebrate him. We had a great time, but at the end of it, he got up and it was a very sweet time. And he said something. He said this. He said, pretty soon... Guys, I will no longer be your senior pastor. But then after that, he said this, but always remember that I'll always be your brother. And there's nothing groundbreaking about that. I mean, you know, I understand that. But in the context of which he said it, it, it overwhelmed me with the joy and the mystery of what the gospel does to us. All right, because, because in Christ, it does not matter what skin color you have. It does not matter how old you are, it doesn't matter where you're from. In Christ, we have a shared commonality of being indwelt by the one Spirit of God. All of us have the same Spirit, the same Spirit that caused the birth of Christ, the same Spirit that anointed Christ for ministry, the same Spirit that was with Christ in ministry, the same Spirit that raised Christ in glory. That Spirit is coursing through all of our veins and is taking up shop in our souls. And because of that, this is what happens. We are all legitimate brothers in the family of God. Do you all ever think about how amazing that reality is? It's not a fickle thing. You know, it's not like saying, what's up, bro, to the guy that you work with or your friend, okay? It's not like that. And it's even more intimate than the relationship that we enjoy with our biological brothers. It's more special than that even. Because in Christ, we have been adopted into the one royal, eternal family of God. Where one day, every single one of us as Christians will be before the throne of God. As brothers in the family of God. Basking in the glory of God for all of eternity. <laughs> we are brothers. And friends, as your brother, I'm so glad to be here with you today to study God's word for us. Because in this passage, John takes up this mysterious idea of family and the body of Christ. Okay, so that's what we're going to be talking about today. The title for that was from last week, I believe. Today we're talking about the family of God and John. Now you remember the background of what's going on here. There were a couple of false teachers, or a bunch of false teachers rather, back in John's day. John called them the Antichrist, right? Kind of a strong label. But that's very much what they were. They were Antichrist. They were teaching some very funky and heretical stuff. A couple of the things they were teaching. One, Jesus is not the Christ. They believed that God would have never come to us in the flesh. They had a very Gnostic understanding of reality, and they thought that because the material world is so 
evil and, and just less than, God would never come to us in the flesh. That's just below him. He would never would have done that. They had a Gnostic understanding of reality. Then secondly, because of that, they believed then that there was no need to mortify the flesh or to kill sin. Because the most important thing in life is that is which is spiritual. The physical life doesn't really matter that much, so it doesn't really matter what you do in the flesh, which you can imagine had severe implications on how people live their life. Now, these folks were causing all sorts of trouble. They were teaching this stuff, and they were claiming to be the true children of God. And because of that, actual Christians were beginning to question their salvation, asking themselves, well, do we really know who God is if these people are claiming these things? So enter John. John gives us a series of tests in this book. He tells us as true Christians what we're supposed to believe truly about the Son of God. So it's kind of a doctrinal test. But he also gives us a moral test as well. And this is what we see in this passage. John tells us there's a specific lifestyle that's incumbent of children of God. It matches their spiritual identity. And this is what he tells us here. That as children of God, our lifestyle is characterized by a pursuit of holiness. You know, 1 Peter, God says, be holy because I am holy. John says that a lifestyle of a true child of God is to pursue holiness. Okay? So in this text, remember, we got to understand that he's not describing for us, all right, how we enter the family of God. What he's describing for us is how we live within the family of God. That's what he's describing for us. God in his grace accepts us as we are, but also in his grace, he never leaves us as we are. And thanks be to God for that. He is reminding us that yes, we are sinners and we will deal with the reality of sin in our life. He's already told us that way back in chapter one. Remember, he says, if you say you have no sin, the truth is not in you. You deceive yourself. We are sinners. So he's made that clear to us. But now he makes it clear to us that Jesus Christ came not only to forgive us of sin, but also to change us, to change us in the likeness of Christ. And so right here, he tells us that as children of God, we have been called to pursue holiness, to live as we are, children of God. Now, using that rubric, he gives us four things, as far as I can see, that tell us what a characteristics or the characteristics of what children of God are. Four different things, all of which, one, gives us great assurance that we are God's children, but also enable us to pursue a lifestyle of holiness. So what I'm going to do real quick is to read the passage and we'll pray, then we'll dive right in. Chapter 2, verse 28. This is what God's word. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. We see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He does appear, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself now as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. 
Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. But whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity this morning where we can come together as family, as legitimate brothers in Christ, to be informed and transformed by your word to us. Lord God, I pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds, that you would give us a spirit of repentance, a spirit of conviction, but that you would also remind us of your overwhelming, indescribable love for us, and that we would find security in that. And out of an overflow of your love for us, we'd be motivated to live and follow Jesus in the way in which you've called us. We love you, Lord, and we pray that you bless this time. And it's in the name of Jesus we all pray. Amen. Okay, so there's four things that John tells us that are characteristic of a child of God. All of them encourage us and assure us of our salvation and also act as tools in our life in our pursuit of holiness. Now, the first thing that we see is that the Christian has an eternal perspective. We see this in verses 28 through 29. The Christian has an eternal perspective. In fact, you can go ahead and write under there that the Christian must cultivate an eternal perspective. Every human being that's ever existed lives in light of what is most real and most vivid to them. Okay, whatever they find most important, whatever is the most real to them, that is what they live in light of. Now, I think the reason that non-Christians and nominal Christians continue to live in a lifestyle of sin, having no desire to kill sin, is because what is most real and most vivid to them is the here and now. The desires, the pleasures, and the priorities of this world are more special, more savory, to them than the priorities, the pleasures, and the purposes of God. And the reason is, is because they are simply devoid of having an eternal perspective. But what John is saying here, that the Christian, he does not live in light of the here and now, but rather he lives in light of the age to come. Now specifically, the Christian lives in light of the second coming of Christ. Now we see this in verses 1 through 2, the whole context, or 28 through 29, the whole context of this first section is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Over and over again in Scripture, we are told by God's grace that this world is not all that there is. God in His grace tells us that. Okay, and it is gracious because all the time, that isn't really all that evident most of the time. And certainly the false hopes of culture and the lies of our own heart would have us believe that this world is all that there is. And I'm telling you right now, Satan is really hoping that as Christians, we would believe that this world is all that there is. But God in his grace tells us that this world is not all there is. There is an age to come. And it dawns in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now as you study the second coming of Jesus in the scriptures, there are so many implications and promises that are tied to it. It is unbelievable. Such a wonderful study. It's fruitful for you. But there's one aspect to the second coming of Jesus that John wants us to to pay special attention to, and it's this. It's the coming judgment of God. And we see this in verse 28. In the second coming of Christ, he wants us to pay attention to the coming judgment of God. 
Now, if you do this study, seriously, if you go home today or this weekend and you take a moment just to study all of the passages that talk about the second coming of Jesus, it's impossible not to see and think about the coming judgment of God. You know, as Christians who are secured in the blood and righteousness of Christ, we don't often think about that. But John says, listen, this is a discipline you must cultivate in your life to think about the judgment that is coming when Christ returns. Think about the first Peter 3 passage, which is listed right there. Peter says that when Christ returns, everyone will have their works, not just non-believers, but everyone will have their works laid bare before God. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 33, says that everyone, not just non-believers, but every single person who has ever existed will have his thoughts, his words, and his deeds examined by Christ. Jesus himself, in the Luke passage listed there, commands even his brothers to watch for the day that he returns. He says, be ready for it. Now, he says that not to scare us, right? He doesn't say that to make us shake in our salvation, but rather he says that to keep us sober, sober-minded, so that we would not be allured by the trappings of this world. There is a very practical effect by fixating on that day. Tim Keller says, when we fixate on the coming judgment of God when Christ returns, this is what happens. We're enabled to think twice about the short-term pleasures in view of long-term consequences. And we need to do that. Because we're easily tempted in this life, we need to have a lighthouse, something to fixate on, which is exactly what Paul does in Philippians 3. So there's a practical effect here with fixating on this. It it, it sobers us. It keeps us sober-minded. The Puritans, you may have done studies about them before. Those were some hardcore dudes back then. All right, The Puritans, they would often practice death when they were going to sleep. How morbid. (laughs) Like, Barton, what'd you do this weekend? You know? Laid in a coffin, Sarah read my eulogy. It was awesome. Come over next. Unbelievable. So morbid. Why did they do that? This is why they did it. To keep them sober-minded. To remind themselves that this world is not all that there is. There is an age to come. And to keep them from being entangled in the sins of this life, they fixated on that day. This is a very practical tool for us in our pursuit of holiness. But as you can tell, that isn't altogether encouraging, right? So how does John give us assurance in verses 28 through 29? Because it's dripping with assurance. This is what he does. It begins at the very beginning of verse 28 when he gives us the call. He says in verse 28, little children abide in Christ. All right, that's a very important phrase. There's all sorts of juicy stuff there. He says little children. What is he saying? He's addressing Christians. He's not talking to the false teachers. He's not talking to nominal Christians. He's talking about genuine believers and members of the family of God. He says little children. Abide in Christ. What does abide mean? In the Greek, that literally means to continue. To continue believing. To continue resting in. Continue trusting. And continue following Christ. Hold fast to Christ. It's the same sentiment that Paul gives us. That since we've been raised new in Christ, walk in Christ. That's what John is saying here. He says, abide in Christ. Now you've got to understand that this is completely counter to what the false teachers were saying, remember. Those guys did not care about living in light of Jesus, and they certainly did not care about following Christ. They were antinomians. And friends, we are surrounded by this today, especially in this hyper-grace movement. Have you all heard about that before? Hyper-grace movement is all over the place today, and it's sweeping evangelicalism. 
In fact, there's some very influential pastors that are preaching this. And this is, this is essentially what it says. It says, because we're justified in Christ, there's nothing really required of us anymore. So putting to death sin and pursuing holiness, at the end of the day, all that is is legalism. Enjoy the freedom that is yours in Christ. That's what they're preaching from their pulpits. And it's causing many kids, it's many young adults, and many college students, and, and many Christians in general to fall into sin. But what John says here, he says, abiding in Christ, continuing in Christ, is not legalism. And if those false teachers do not repent, they will be put to shame at the day to come. Because they will find out they are not truly children of God. Can you, can you imagine that? Your whole life, you're thinking that you're right with Christ. Then on that day when you're finally before the throne of Christ, this is what he says to you. I never knew you. I can't imagine that. But John says, he gives us the assurance, he says, if you are abiding in Christ, you have all the assurance of the world that that will not be a reality in the day to come. And friends, we need this assurance because if you're like me, you're tempted to despair pretty regularly by the great tempter. But we have great assurance here. And this is what he says, if you are abiding in Christ, you have confidence on the day of judgment. What John is saying here is that if we're abiding in Christ, if we, if we love Christ, if we're desiring Christ, all right, we can have you confident that on the day of judgment, we will be vindicated as children of God. Why? Because only children of God have the desire and the ability to abide in Christ. The rest of the world does not have the desire to do that. But the Christian who's been born of Christ has the desire to abide in Christ. And so if you're abiding in Christ, if you're believing in him and trusting him, you have all the confidence in the world and the day to come you'll be vindicated as a child of God. And friends, what is more, we can experience this confidence now. He said on that day you'll have boldness even. That you'll be a child of God. Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 24, that if you receive my word, meaning that if you abide in me, you can understand and believe that you will pass from judgment, pass from death, and into life. It's a sign sealed and delivered thing. This is true of you. <laughs> we will be vindicated as the children of God. But friends, don't you understand that we can enjoy that insurance now? We can walk in that confidence now. This is what Romans 8, 12 through 17 is all about. We have the spirit of Christ in us. We can call the creator of the cosmos, the judge of the world, Daddy, Abba. We can enjoy that now. Do you enjoy the security that you have in Christ? You are a child of God, and we can live in that security. It's unbelievable. It's, it's equivalent, or kind of equivalent, to a young adult all right, whose parents are just loaded. <laughs> and one day when his parents kick, they're going to receive millions of dollars. All right, those, those, those folks who have that inheritance waiting for them, there's a certain confidence they walk with. For most people, all right, for most of us, <laughs> where that is not the case, there's a little bit of fear and trepidation when it comes to money. Mainly, if we lose our jobs, we're not going to have any money. <laughs> and there's a little bit of fear that comes with that. But someone who knows there's an inheritance waiting for them, no matter how difficult this life is, they have a confidence about them because they know one day it's all going to be okay. And what John is saying here, as Christians, we have that confidence, we can enjoy it now. Because on the day of judgment, we're going to pass from judgment, pass from death, and into life. That awaits us. So we have confidence on the day of judgment. But also we have confidence that we're born of Christ. We can have confidence that we're born of Christ. Listen, we know Christ. And we know that He is holy. And if we're born of Christ, that means we're born into holiness. We have a desire for holiness. The key word here. And uh, verse 29 is that phrase, born of. All right, that's written in the passive perfect tense, which means then, 
that being born of Christ, being born of the Spirit, precedes the desire and the ability to live righteously. So what does this mean? If you are abiding in Christ, if you love Christ, if you desire Christ, guess what? That is not of you. That is because of Christ in you, producing that within you. It's an indelible sign of God's saving grace over your life. So what is John doing for us in these first two verses? Number one, he's saying that having an eternal perspective is a mighty tool in our pursuit of holiness. All right, it keeps us sober-minded. And when we focus on that day, all of the false pleasures and false hopes of this world fade into insignificance in light of the coming glory. All right? Secondly, though, when we abide in Christ, we're given all the assurance that we need to where we can live confidently now as sons. Because the only reason we can abide in Christ is because we've been born of Christ. So one Christian and your pursuit of holiness and our job together is to pursue holiness as the sons of God have an eternal perspective. Now, secondly, in verses uh, one, through, uh, 1 through 3, John says the Christian is awed by the Father's adopting love. Okay, right under that, say the Christian needs to cultivate an awareness of God's adopting love for us. I think one of the reasons that as Christians, legit Christians, sometimes we can toil in sin. You know, we all struggle with doubt. I think one of the reasons we do struggle with doubt and sometimes even disbelieve the promises of the gospel, we all do this, is because sometimes we have a very anemic view of God's fatherly love for us. We have an anemic view. Listen, all of us have been burned before in our relationships. Has everybody been burned before in a relationship in this life? Of course we have. We've been burned by many relationships in this life. And sometimes we impose those experiences on our relationship with God. We think, well, I mean, maybe God's love is it unconditional? Maybe my status as a beloved child of God is in question. We think that way sometimes. Well, maybe God's commands for my life aren't the best for me because there's been plenty of people who've been manipulating me in the present. Maybe God is doing that. Sometimes we think that way. Sometimes we disbelieve his promises because like the promises we have in this life, maybe there's strings attached to those things. We have a very, sometimes an anemic view of God's love, and because of that, our life in holiness is undermined. So what John does in the first three verses, some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, he reminds us of the astonishing and radical nature of God's love for us as his kids. One, giving us the assurance that we need that we are beloved by God, and two, motivating us to pursue holiness. Here's a couple of things that he says and reminds us of God's just unfathomable love. Number one, in verse one, we are God's priority. Listen, you are not an afterthought to God. You are his priority. Verse one, that literally says, in verse one, if you literally translate it, it says, Christians, remember what amazing love the Father has lavished upon you. He says, remember the amazing love that God has lavished upon you. Remember that. He says, if you doubt God's goodness, if you doubt that he thinks about you, that he cares about you, that he prioritizes you, remember the love that he's lavished upon you. And what he's talking about in verses 1 through 2 is God's historical redemptive plan to save you, which culminates in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross. He says, if you doubt that God loves you, that he cares about you, that he prioritizes you, go back to the cross of Jesus Christ and see how much he loves you. In verses 1 through 2, I mean, just think about this. 
In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God says, let us create man in our own image. What God is saying there is, he goes, I'm going to create man in such a way that he's going to be like me, that he's going to know me, and that he can enjoy me. I'm going to create him in my image. He did that in creation for you to be in relationship with himself. Of course, you get to Genesis 3, and, and Adam blows that whole thing up, right, and drags us into sin, and we become less than human. But still, God's purposes are not thwarted. We see in the New Testament that when the time was right, God sent his only begotten son, the perfect man, the perfect human, to redeem all that Adam had forfeited. And that whoever believes in the son comes into relationship with him and is transformed into his image. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, what is it, 1549. He says, just as we've been born into the image of Adam, so now we bear the image of Christ. The purposes of God in creation and redemption is for you to be in relationship with him. This is what we're told in, in Ephesians or Romans 8.29. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In creation and redemption, God has prioritized you to be in relationship with him. Friends, this is amazing. And what's even more amazing is that he initiated that. Not you. <laughs> he did all this not because he saw anything awesome in you, but he did this in spite of all of our ugliness and all of our sin. He chose in his love to lavish upon you his unmerited love so that in his love you might be transformed into the image of his son. And this is what John says, Christian, understand this. We are his. In his love, God has adopted us. Now, the second thing he wants us to understand about the amazing love of God is that as his children, we've been given unimaginable blessings. Listen, I hope, my hope is that all of us in here grew up with a loving dad. You know, a fun dad, a God-fearing dad, a dad that loved you. I know that I did, and I'm thankful every day for it. And I know all of us are. But even if you had the most perfect dad imaginable, he is not perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect. And some of us in here I know had very awful dads. He was an ass. He didn't pay attention to you. He withheld love from you. And you still bear the scars of how he treated you. But even if your father was awful in this life, we are told by John that our father in heaven is perfect in his love for you. He is perfect. He gives us unimaginable blessings. We're told in scripture that he pays attention to us. God. He never loses focus, not even for a moment. He, he cares about you. He knows you thoroughly. He knows you intimately. In his generosity, he is perfect in his care for you. He withholds what harms you, and he gives you, gives you what you need. He's perfect in his, in his presence. He is always near, and he's drawing us near. We have unlimited access to his throne. We're told that he's compassionate, that he's trusting, and that he's faithful, and that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. He is perfect in his love for us as our Father. And even though sometimes we don't believe it, even sometimes we feel unlovable. <laughs> We're told in Scripture that when he looks upon you, he doesn't see a wretched sinner, but he sees his very own son, Jesus Christ, in whom he's well pleased. And friends, in Christ, he looks at you, and he, this is what he says about you. Because I don't care what you're struggling with. In you, I am well pleased because you're in my son. That's how our Father in heaven loves us. But as, as amazing as that is, what John says here in verse 2, that the fullness of our adoption as sons is not even imaginable what it would be like when Christ returns. 
And the day to come, as, as amazing as our sonship is right now, we're not even able to understand fully what it's going to be like in that day to come. I mean, it's just going to blow our mind. We can't even imagine it. Paul says in Romans 8 that the glory to be revealed to us is not even worth comparing to the things of this world. Paul tells us that right now we can see Jesus with the eyes of faith, but we essentially have veiled faces. But one day, those veils are going to be lifted and that we're going to be able to see Jesus for who he is with our very eyes. And that moment is going to be so transcendent, so magnificent, that that very instant we're going to be transformed in the perfect likeness of Christ. Where for all of eternity, we will enjoy all of the rights and privileges of Jesus as God's sons. He gives us untold blessings. That's how he loves you. And because of this, there is, an, there is a result. Because of this, our pursuit of holiness, our motivation is no longer to earn God's favor, but it's to live in response of it. God has already given you everything. He has secured you. Now we live in response. We don't have to earn it, but rather we live in response to it. When I was a kid, my parents would always take us to whatever restaurant we wanted to for our birthday. And I always, you know, chose like, Bruce Chris or something. My sister, on the other hand, always hated it when she was, it was her birthday because she always wanted to go to Taco Bell. Right? She couldn't choose anywhere in the city of Memphis, and she chose Taco Bell. I like Taco Bell. Gordita Crunch is my jam, all right? But they call it Taco Hell for a reason. It does not agree with me. And it certainly is not what you would call authentic Mexican food, okay? But the only reason that she chose that is because she's never tasted the deliciousness of authentic Mexican food. I guarantee you now, she never goes back to Taco Bell because she's been to Los Totorgas. Amen. <laughs> what John is saying here is that when we taste the perfect love of God, all of the false loves of this world are going to lose their appeal because we've tasted Christ. And because we've tasted Christ, we're going to want more and more of Christ. We have been indwelt by the Spirit of God. We're being transformed into the image of Christ. Now we also have the desire to yearn after Christ. So we live in response to what God has already done. Not to earn it, but to live in response of it. So what is John doing here in these first three verses? He's saying, remember how much God loves you. You don't even have to wonder about it. God has, has showered you with his love. So be secure in that. And being secure in that, let that motivate you to live a life pleasing to him. Not to earn favor, but to live in response of it. Now thirdly, and we're going to try to move a little bit more quickly. In verses 4 through 6, <clears throat> John tells us that the Christian hates sin. Okay, right under that say the Christian cultivates a hatred for sin. I remember when I first went to Ole Miss as a freshman, young and impressionable, and I uh, had my first experience in the Grove, I love Ole Miss. I love the Grove. But I have never been surrounded by so much booze in my I mean, seriously, it was like 20,000 Kobayashis having a bourbon drinking contest. It was, it was incredible. Don't know who Kobayashi is? He's a guy that eats like 1,000 hot dogs in a minute. Go ahead and YouTube it. It's fascinating. But it was just amazing. <laughs> I've never been surrounded by this. And what was equally as amazing was the, the, the people pounding shots and all that type of stuff weren't just folks my age, but there were parents out there. And you know, some, I knew some of those parents. They were deacons at the local Baptist church. And, uh, you know, I didn't care at the time. I mean, it was a whole pass one down turnaround situation. I wasn't a believer then. And, um, but it was just amazing. Now, I, I don't mind having kicking back. But indulging, 
saying one thing on Sunday but living an entirely different way during the week. I look back on that part of my life and I imagine what Paul would have said of me and I know what he would have said of me. Roman, or Philippians 3.18 when with tears he describes those who claim Christ but live as enemies of Christ. With tears he describes them. The culture, even the Southern Bible Belt culture, has normalized sin. But what, Paul, what John is saying here is that the Christian cultivates a hatred for sin because he knows what it really is. What is it? Sin is lawlessness. Another thing you see in culture today, it says that the most important thing about you is your self-esteem, right? And so never get down on yourself. If you have something egregious about you, the right amount of psychology, medication, and self-help is going to fix you. But, you know, don't get down on yourself and certainly don't call it sin. They're, they're mistakes, after all, okay? Everything, the most important thing about you is your self-esteem. And I see this every now and again in ministry when I meet with, with young folks and, and they're struggling with guilt and they come to my office and, you know, they either hooked up with their girlfriend over the weekend or they're addicted to something on the Internet. And, and they just have all sorts of guilt in their life. And most of the time they say, I, I just keep on going into the same mistakes over and over again. I was like, bro, you do not feel guilty because you made a mistake. I'm wearing two different colored socks right now. I don't feel guilty about it. Right? We don't feel guilty about mistakes. You feel guilty because you're rebelling against God. We can't call sin mistakes. We've got to call it for what it is. We call it sin. And friends, this is what sin is. It's lawlessness. John wants to make us sure that we understand the reality and how treacherous sin is. It's lawlessness. Now, what that does is it removes our ability to treat sin as personality disorders or personality, you know, being an introvert or an extrovert. It prevents us from treating them as mistakes. It's rebellion. And by using the word law, he tells us that there is a lawmaker, right? So when we make our mistakes, we're not just transgressing a principle. We're transgressing the lawmaker the God who's gone to infinite lengths to show us that he loves us. So the Christian hates sin because he understands what it is. It's lawlessness. It's nothing to fool around with. It's rebellion against the God who loves us. Secondly, the Christian hates sin because Christ came to destroy sin. The very reason that Christ came was to destroy sin. John tells us in verse 5 that Jesus appeared to take away sin and destroy the works of the devil. All the things that are causing problems in our hearts and out in the world, Jesus came to destroy those things, right? So what he's saying here is, I don't care if you claim Christ like the false teachers were. If you're living in sin, you're an enemy of Christ. He's not talking about sin. We all deal with sin. We already talked about this in 1 John 9. But what he's talking about is making a practice of lawlessness. And if you're making a practice of lawlessness, you're living as an enemy of Christ. I love World War II books. My wife tells me to just go ahead and retire because I already turned into an old man. I mean, one of my favorite shows right now is Hunting Hitler. I'm unbelievable. But I'm reading this book right now called The Storm of War. I highly recommend it if you're into that sort of thing. But there's a uh, passage, or not a passage, but a section in that book where the uh, guy's talking about the Vichy French. All right, and the Vichy French, as you know, were the French folks who, after Hitler invaded France and captured France and ruled over it, they joined up with Hitler for the most part. They saw an opportunity. They did not want to be on the wrong side of history, so they joined up with Hitler. And in most cases, right, they were even worse than Nazis. Even before they were commanded by Hitler, they automatically went to go hunt the French underground, to turn them in. 
And in fact, in one summer of 1942, they sent 4,000 Jewish children to Auschwitz. They weren't even asked to do that. They just did it because they wanted to impress Hitler. But after the Allies recaptured France and liberated it, what did the Vichy French do? They said, hey, we're actually the good guys. I mean, we're victims in all of this too. We were just doing what we had to do to survive. Which, of course, did not go very far at the French countryside. Right? Why? Because you cannot be an ally and an axis at the same time. And what John is saying here, Jesus Christ has come to destroy all that is evil. And even if we claim Christ, if we are making friends with evil, if we're abiding in evil, we simply cannot abide in Christ. Thirdly, we hate evil. We hate sin because it's incompatible with the life in Christ. Very quickly, Jesus, or John tells us there is no sin at all in Jesus. There is no sin in him. We know that Jesus is holy. If we're in relationship with Jesus, we've been born with Jesus, which means we've been born into holiness, which means he's making us holy. So a life in sin, very similar to our, our, our previous point, a life in sin is simply incompatible with a life in Christ. It's oil and water. They just don't go together. Of course we're going to sin this life, but abiding in sin and abiding in Christ are just incompatible. So what is John doing here? He's removing false assurance, the false assurance that his false teachers were giving the church. He's removing that. And he's saying the culture and the false teachers, they've normalized sin, but Christian, understand what sin is. You're going to fall to it every day. <laughs> Don't delude yourselves. But cultivate a hatred for it. Because sin is lawlessness. It's a very rebellion against God. This is not being a legalist. It's simply being a child of God. Now lastly, in verses 7 through 10, John tells us that the Christian seeks to be like his father. The Christian desires and seeks to be like his father in heaven. Really what this section tells us is how we live reveals our family heritage. It just reveals it. It's a mirror. If we're abiding in Christ, that's going to reveal something about our family heritage. If we're practicing sin and lawlessness, that's going to reveal something about our family heritage. This passage, I love it because it's dripping with John chapter 8 when uh, Jesus goes to town with the Jews talking about the sons of Abraham. It's one of my favorite passages. If you remember, in that passage, Jesus starts out by saying, I am the truth, right? And I have come to free you from slavery and bondage. Now, the Jews had a problem with that. They said, hey, Jesus, listen, our heritage, our parentage, we are sons of Abraham. We've never been a slave a day in our life. We don't need the freedom that you bring. And this is how Jesus responds in, you know, redneck. He goes, I don't care who your mom or your daddy is. All right, because your true family heritage is revealed about what you do. And if you were truly sons of Abraham, you would do what he did. You would follow God. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, a famous Calvinist preacher, Puritan, um, uh, they, there was a report done about him, about his family tree, and it's, it's fascinating. If you go back and look at his life, it's incredible. Um, he and his wife were the parents and grandparents and great-grandparents of no less than eight preachers, uh, 13 college presidents, um, 100 lawyers, 66 doctors, three senators, and one treasury, or one uh, director of the treasury, all in his family. And I think that's only the stuff I could remember. It's just incredible. I mean, his family tree is like a who's who. His grandson... Born by his daughter, Eleanor. Uh, Eleanor said uh, that my grandson, um, he uh, is a very unruly child. <laughs> He's not like the eight pastors. He's an unruly child, and he needs to be watched over very closely. That grandson grew up to be Aaron Burr, the man who murdered 
Alexander Hamilton. And the commentator said that eight lines of gospel preachers converged on Aaron Burr, but he still grew up to be Beelzebub. <laughs> Which tells us that it doesn't matter who your parents are, and it doesn't even matter really what you say about yourself. Because our lifestyle reveals what our true family heritage is. And that's what Jesus, or that's what John is saying here. Our lifestyle reveals who our true parents are. Now, in this text, we get a snapshot of the only two families: the family of God and the family of the devil. Really quickly, let's look at the family of God. We've already seen that the distinguishing mark of children of God is practical righteousness. Okay, rather the pursuit of holiness. That just marks them. They don't live righteously to enter the family of God, remember. Don't think that. We don't live righteously to enter the family of God, but rather it's the natural byproduct of those who have been adopted into the family of God. All right, but anyway, that's the, that's the distinguishing mark for a child of God, the pursuit of holiness. And the reason is, is because we've been born of the Spirit. We see this in verse 9. Verse 9, this is what John says, the Christian has the seed of God abiding in him. All right, I look through all the commentaries. They said that is supposed to be a shocking metaphor. The seed of God is in you. And the reason they want that to be shocking is because they want you to make no mistake about it. Your new birth in Christ is not a metaphor. It's not some misty thing. It's a tangible reality. You have been reborn in Christ. And when the seed of God, that is the spirit of God, takes root in you, he regenerates you. He changes your DNA. He transforms you into the likeness of Christ. He's given you a new heart, a new power, a new desire. We're not going to do these things perfectly, repentively, but still we've been given new life. And he says, this is not a metaphor. This is true. You have literally been made my sons. You are brothers in the one family of God. And because we've been given this spirit, the result is we're going to love what our Father loves. And he gives us an example of that in verse 10. But the point is, our adoption as sons isn't just about our relationship to God. It's about our imaging God. We've been adopted into his family, which means everything about us is changing. And it's just natural. It just happens that we're going to start desiring the things that the Spirit desires. You know, I know that my wife is uh, her dad's daughter, okay? My father-in-law, he trained at Juilliard. He was like the Gabe Statham of First President Augusta. The guy just, I mean, he's hardcore classical music, and he's just an awesome musician, listens to Bach in the radio, you know, one of those type fellas. Sarah, I've, I've dissuaded her from listening to Bach in the car because, you know, that's just, I don't like to jam out to Bach while I'm driving down the highway. But still, she loves it. I mean, she, does, she grew up in that, and she has, a, she has a strong desire and a strong love for the things that her dad does. And it's very easy to tell that, you know, you are related to your dad because you all have the exact same desires. Now, I can know that I'm my father's son because we have the same type of desire and, 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 and love for John Wayne movies. I mean, I, I know everything there is to know about John Wayne. Trivia. His true name was Marion, which is kind of weird, but it's true. Every Christmas, we have a Duke marathon. And my wife suffers through it. I love John Wayne. I am my father's son. This is what John is saying for the Christian. You are your father's sons. And you're going to desire the things that your father desires. You just cannot help it. You've been changed. And you're being changed more and more every day. And praise be to God that we desire life. That's what God is doing in us. But on the flip side, John says that if you're not seeking to image Christ, to imitate Christ because you don't have the spirit of Christ, you're not sitting in neutral. There's only two families, the family of God and the family of the devil. 
And this is the distinguishing mark of those in the family of the devil. The practice of lawlessness. And the reason that is so is because that has been the desire and the practice of Satan since the beginning. You remember what Jesus said in John chapter 8, the passage I referred to just a second ago, in 43, verses 43 through 44. He's talking to the Jews and he's saying, if you do not hear me, if you do not find what I'm saying to you appealing, if you're not abiding me, then you're not of Abraham and you're not of the father, you're of your father the devil. Because from the beginning he has been a murderer and he's the father of lies. Now what he's saying is not that all non-believers are devil worshipers. But he's saying that if you do not belong to Christ, the only other alternative is that you belong to him. This passage is convicting, but it's also very reassuring because he gives us a, a portrait. He gives us a mirror. And he says, if you are abiding in Christ, make no mistake about it, you are of Christ. But it's also challenging because we have to keep ourselves sober. We have to check ourselves as John is commanding us to. Friends, this is very heavy. But never forget, there is no such thing as a sinless Christian in this life. There is no such thing as a sinless Christian in this life. God in his grace accepts us as we are. But it's also in his grace that he does not leave us as we are. He's changing us in the likeness of his son. And what John does here is he gives us four tools, all of which assure us and also help us to live this life of holiness. Christians, cultivate an eternal perspective. Understand, don't, be, don't live like the world. This world is not all that there is. There is an age to come and it's going to be glorious. Fixate your eyes upon it. Understand what sin really is. It's not a mistake. It's not something to, to laugh about. It is rebellion against God. Cultivate a hate for it. That's not legalism. That's just being a child of God. Christian, by the Spirit, follow in the, in the pattern of Christ. Seek to image Him. This is happening in you anyway, so give into it and live as He's transforming you to be. But most importantly, Christian, by the power of the Spirit, abide in the love of God as revealed to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Rest in it. Abide in it. And friends, as we do, this is what's going to happen. It's what Paul tells us in Galatians 5. It's what John is talking about here. As we abide in the Word of God and be overwhelmed by His love for us, the lesser pleasures and the lesser loves of this life are going to lose their grip on you. And your desire and your appetite for Christ is going to grow. And you're going to fall more and more deeply in love with Him. And day by day, He's going to transform you, the Spirit, into the image of Him who you behold, Christ. John says, little children, Christians, brothers in the family of God, abide in Christ. And friends, it is such a privilege to be able to do that with you. As we struggle to do that together, let us always believe and remember that the promises of Christ are irrevocable. They're ours. And we have that wonderful promise in Philippians 1.6 that the good work that Christ has started in you, He will bring about to completion on the day to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for this time, and we all thank you for the gospel of Jesus. In your goodness and your kindness, not because of anything that we have done or that you have foreseen in us, but in your love, you have chosen to lavish us with your unmerited love. You have transferred us from the kingdom of darkness and you have brought us into your kingdom of light. Father, you have made us your family and your sons. And Father, we pray that by the power of the Spirit, that reality would become more and more tangible and more and more real to us every day. That we would fall more and deeply in love with Christ. That we would understand your love for us and being motivated by that, we would seek to follow you together.
We pray this in the blessed name of our risen King Jesus. Amen.